We're right in the middle of our five-week topical series on Christian contentment. Uh, On September 13th, just for those of you who are keeping track, uh, we will return to the book of Revelation, and we will finish, God willing, the book of Revelation as we look at chapters 18 through 22 together uh, this fall. But for now, we turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Here now, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we come now to your word and we thank you for it. We thank you for preserving it for us that we may have it this morning read in a language that we understand. But we come to you now and we cry out for more than human understanding. We ask you to grant us spiritual understanding that you would open our eyes so that we can behold wondrous things from your law, that you, O God, by your spirit would work in our hearts to teach us and train us and correct us and even rebuke us for righteousness' sake, that you would make us more like Jesus. O God, be with your people. Help them. O God, work in their hearts and their minds. And O God, be with me. Help me, your servant. Protect me from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you rich? Are you rich? Not many of us consider ourselves rich do we? I mean, in general, we we work, we spend, and we do our best to give and to save whatever we can. Some of us, some of us have more than comfortable incomes. Others find themselves living paycheck to paycheck. Perhaps some are just hoping that they even get to see a paycheck this month or next. So I want you to understand, please, that it is not my intention to shame anyone's status or to diminish anyone's current struggles in saying what I'm about to say. Are you ready? Because I'm going to say it. Get your tomatoes ready. We are all rich. We are all rich. This is especially true when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world. 
Consider this. If your family earns the median household income in the United States, which happens to be approximately $63,000 per year, if if you are able to earn that, you are in the top 0.17% of the richest people in the world. The top 0.17% richest people in the world. In case you're wondering, the median worldwide income is less than $2,000 per year, which is about $5 per day. About $5 per day. Indeed, if we go through that exercise as we've done and we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we would conclude we are indeed rich. But beyond income, aren't we rich in other ways? Aren't we rich in opportunity? Aren't we rich in freedom? Aren't we rich in comfort? Listen, while we take so much in this life for granted, think about the world. So many others live under repressive regimes. So many others lack dependable and sustainable infrastructure. And so many have life expectancies that only reflect those poor and in some cases even non-existent safe and reliable medical care access to medicine over the counter that we have access to. Here's something to think about next time that you use one of the bathrooms in your home. I know who thought Pastor Dan's going to talk about bathrooms this morning. I want you to think about this. You are part of the privileged 40%, 40% of the world's population that actually gets to enjoy safe management of human waste and the opportunity to bathe yourself with a steady, reliable, and clean source of running water anytime you want to. Think about that next time you go into the bathroom or if you're like me, one of a few bathrooms that exist in your home. What's the point? Why am I telling you all this? I'm doing so so that you will see that the words contained in the passage before us are not just for those who happen to sit in the lap of luxury. They're words for all of us, for each and every one of us who have been entrusted with so much from God. At the same time, We also need to see that while we do have so much more than most people that live on this planet, we actually share something in common with all of humanity, no matter how much or how little that we enjoy. And it's this, inside all of us, inside of you and me, rest sits like a heavy brick a lack of contentment, a lack of satisfaction with all that God is for us in Jesus Christ, a hunger and a thirst for more, a burning desire fueled by the lie that says, if we can just earn a little bit more, if we can just save a little bit more, if we can just buy a little bit more, even if we can just experience a little bit more in this life, then we'll be content. Then 
will be content. But like embers that rise from a flame only to start a fire somewhere else, our passionate pursuit of these little bit mores, they serve only to widen the circumference of our lack of satisfaction. And they make it so much harder to contain, let alone quench. Right here in front of us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, God has something to say to us about how to quench this desire for more. Something to say about how to find true and lasting satisfaction in the blessings that he has bestowed upon us. A, a message that rings just as true, whether it's given right here in America or somewhere on another continent in some of the poorest parts of the world. The message that God has is for all of God's people. So to aid us in understanding God's word today. We're going to consider this passage in three points, and I'll go ahead and give you all three up front. So if you're taking notes, here they are. Number one, the uncertainty of riches. The uncertainty of riches. Number two, the certainty of God. The certainty of God. And third, the call to generosity the call to generosity. So let's begin with point one, the uncertainty of riches. And you'll notice that that's a phrase taken straight from verse 17, the uncertainty of riches. No matter how much or how little God has entrusted to us, God wants us to embrace the truth that all of it is uncertain. All of it is uncertain. All of it is temporary. It can be taken away from us just as quickly, sometimes even more quickly, as it has been given to us. That's a reality faced by people every day, and maybe it's a reality faced by some of you here this morning or others listening on the recording later. That's why Paul, inspired by God, cautions us he tells Timothy, teach, teach the church at Ephesus this. Tell them not to be haughty. What does that mean? It means not to be arrogant or conceited. Don't be haughty about your riches. He also says, tell them not to set our hopes. That is to put our trust in our riches. Why? Because they're uncertain. They're uncertain. They're not promised. Riches are not assured. They're more like quicksand than they are rock. Like Proverbs 23.5 warns us, when we trust in riches, they, quote, suddenly sprout wings and fly like an eagle toward heaven. When we light our eyes, or when we put our trust in riches, before we know it, they'll suddenly sprout wings and fly like an eagle toward heaven. Perhaps you know that Jesus taught a parable about this. 
He taught a parable about the uncertainty of riches, and I want us to look at it together. Keeping your finger there, or if you're using an electronic device, put a bookmark there. Flip with me over to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself or herself and is not rich toward God. You see, the rich man thought his life was dependent, even measured on the abundance of his possessions. He arrogantly credited himself with obtaining them. How many times did he say, my? And he put all his hopes in them. You can almost hear it, right? Well done, soul. Attaboy, soul. Look at what you've accomplished. You're set. Good, relax. You don't have a care in the world. Just eat, drink, and be merry. But God gets the last word. You're a fool. You're a fool. Listen, when we measure our worth, or we seek to find lasting satisfaction solely in what we experience or what we enjoy or what we accumulate on this earth, whether it's in our, in our house or in our garage or even in our bank accounts or our savings accounts, our 401ks and everything else. If we put our hope only in that, if we measure our worth and satisfaction only in that, listen, you're setting yourself up for failure. For it is the Lord who gives. And it is the Lord who takes away. Putting our hope in anything else is nothing but futility. Not doing those things, not saving, you know, all those, and that's not what I'm talking about. If we put our hopes in that, if we measure our worth and our satisfaction by those things, it's futile. That brings us to our second point this morning. The certainty of God. You see this clearly in verse 17 as it continues. God, comma, and then this phrase, who provides us with everything to enjoy. 
God provides us with everything. Now think about that for a moment. Everything you have. Think about that. Take a mental tour through your man cave, your she shed, is that what they're calling it? Through your home, through your register, through your retirement accounts, through your garage. Take, take, a, take a moment through that and realize this. Everything you have is a gift. Everything's been provided to you. It's God's sovereign will and pleasure to bestow upon us all that we have. To, to each of us has been given a measure. And as we live in this life, some is added and some is taken away. Some don't get as much as others, but it's all from God. All in accordance with God's purpose and God's plan to make us more like Jesus, to sanctify us. So while on one hand, your hard work, your opportunities that you have may allow you to earn an income that affords you many material possessions, if that's true, then you must remember that it was God who gifted you, God who sustained you, and it was God who provided you the opportunity to do so. But on the other hand, if you find yourself in want and need, you must remember that it is God who leads you by his spirit to an even greater dependence, to, to cry to him, to, to God, give me my daily bread. I've said this before, but I don't think I understood that prayer until I was in sub-Saharan West Africa and heard people pray that prayer. And I saw that they really had no idea where their next meal was coming from. And yet God led them to say, give us this day our daily bread. And God provides for them. Listen, also on that same other hand, if it's your negligence or if it's your sin that has brought you to that place of want and need, you have to also remember that it's God's grace that convicts. It's God's grace that restores. It's God's grace that strengthens. And it's God's grace that leads you to live in accordance with his calling upon your life. Bottom line is, any riches we have in this life, we are nothing but absolutely wrong if we think anything that we have does not come solely from him. The point is, and this is the point in the text, the only sure and certain thing we have in this life is God. We are totally dependent upon him for everything. In him, we live and we move and we have our being. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you everything you have is from God? I know I do. At least I think I do. And that's what makes this life, what makes my life so strange. You know, we believe that truth, right? But we often live like we don't, don't we? Or am I the only one? When we're asking and yearning and even striving for more, whether it be more things or more comfort or more anything, just so we can have more, 
Well, I am. Perhaps we are often guilty of just trying to make ourselves content by getting more, by, by putting more in the storehouse and even tearing the storehouses down and building bigger ones. We do that over and over and over again rather than just stopping for a moment and seeking contentment and what God has already provided. It's important that I say this. I am not saying that hard work and diligent stewardship, frugality, whatever you call that, diligent stewardship. I'm not saying that those things are bad. They're good. They are. But rather, I'm trying to expose what lies behind that work. What lies behind that stewardship? Is it just so that we can have more earthly comfort? Is it done just so that we can have a greater status in our own eyes or the eyes of others to somehow get more respect from our spouse or our children? to be able to carry on some legacy that we've benefited from? One question I like to ask myself a lot is, is the excess that I have and the things that I'm accumulating, are they they becoming an idol? Is it an idol that I, that we think, somehow mediates God's grace and favor to us? Look what I did, God. Don't you love me now? Look how good I've been. Look how hard I've worked. Look at how much I've put aside. You love me more now, right, God? If that thinking ever creeps into your mind, and I I confess, it has crept into my mind. Very subtle. It's a subtle lie of the devil. It creeps in, and we begin to believe this. If that's true of you as it is for me, I want you to write this down. God cannot give you any more of himself than he already has. Did you catch that? God cannot give you any more of himself than he already has. He chose you. He chose you for salvation from the foundation of the world. He's given you his son. The one who has redeemed, restored, and forgiven you. And God has sealed the immeasurable riches of his grace upon your heart by his Holy Spirit. He's guaranteeing that you do indeed belong to him and that all of him belongs to you. What more? What more than that could possibly satisfy this unquenchable hunger and unquenchable thirst in my soul, in your soul? What more could possibly satisfy the burning desire, that big brick that just sits within us? What else could satisfy that desire to find more contentment than knowing that God has chosen us for himself. He's given himself to us. He's promised us himself to us. And all of him is ours in Christ. That's why I'm amazed that beyond that, 
God still, by his boundless grace, gives us measures of earthly riches in this life. But I want you to see what the text says. They are given, quote, to enjoy. They are given to enjoy. Enjoy what? To enjoy them? Of course. But there's something bigger. To enjoy him. To enjoy him. To lead us to delight in the giver of the gift more than the gift itself. To tune our hearts to sing his praise and to steady our feet to stand on the solid rock of the only sure and steady anchor that we have in this life. And that is the certainty that God is and always will be God. God, our God. God, my God. That is the certainty of God. And so when we consider, on one hand, the uncertainty of riches, and on the other, the certainty of God, we're naturally led to wonder. So what do I do? What's next? How do I respond? Well, anticipating this, God, through his apostle Paul, gives us a resounding call a call to a radically unique way of life. And that's going to bring us to our third and final point this morning, the call to generosity. Generosity must be our response. It has to be. Look with me again at verses 18 and 19. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see, God being rich, God is is rich in mercy and being rich in God, in his mercy and grace is gonna naturally lead us to be rich. Notice the use of that word again, rich in good works. Good works, as Ephesians 2.10 reminds us, the good works that were prepared beforehand by God, that we would walk into them. Good works that freely reflect the riches that God has so freely lavished upon us. Good works that lead us to do good to others just as God has done to us. Good works that lead us to be ready to share. That's what the text says being ready to share with anyone at any time, good works that manifest themselves in a self-sacrificing, Christ-exalting generosity, a generosity that openly testifies what we've already established this morning, a generosity that screams, and I won't scream, although I might be getting loud, I won't scream, everything we have has been given to us by God. All of it belongs to him. All of it. And we're thankful that he's entrusted it to us. And as stewards of what already belongs to him, we freely, we freely let go of it. We let go of it and we give it away as he calls us to. 
and as others may have need. Brothers and sisters, listen, when we realize how rich we are in God, when we embrace the truth that we can be satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus Christ, when we find ourselves content in him rather than seeking contentment in the things of the world, we can only be led to this one glorious and beautiful way of life. And it's the way of generosity. Let me put it another way. If you are not content, you cannot be generous. If you are not truly content, you cannot be truly generous. But wait, even more wonderfully, the more generous you become, the more contentment you get to experience. Anybody else recognize that in their life? You see, contentment and generosity are not enemies. The message of the prince and the principalities of this world want us to believe that. No, you don't, you don't find contentment and satisfaction by giving stuff away. You find contentment and satisfaction by getting more. If you don't hear that message, I'd like to know what you're watching, what you're looking at online, because those messages come through all the time. Contentment and generosity are friends. They feed into and flow from one another. Trying to be one without the other is like trying to lasso the moon with a rope made of sand. It's impossible. You simply cannot store up treasures solely on this earth and expect to be truly content. I mean, we've defined content as satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself taught us this in the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps you're thinking of that. Do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. But what? Store up treasures in heaven. Paul here, inspired by God, is reminding us of what Jesus taught us. If we answer God's call to generosity, as it says here, look at verse 19, the way to take hold of that which is truly life. Generosity is the way to take hold of that which is truly life. It's the only way to find yourself satisfied, to be content. So I want to close by asking some questions. So as I've been wearing my steel-toed shoes all morning, perhaps we should all open ourselves, our minds, ask God to work through us through these questions, to work in us. I hope by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit that God will bring true and lasting change in your life just as he's been doing in mine. So first question, and as you know, those of you who know me well know that one question might have several sub-questions. Let me ask this. Do you see yourself as a master of all you have or as a steward of all you have. Sub-question to explain that question. Maybe some of our young people don't understand what a steward is. Do your riches in this world belong to you or do they belong to God? If they solely belong to you, then you see yourself as master over them. 
If you realize that they ultimately belong to God, you see yourselves as a manager or a steward of them. So that's something for you to ponder. Second, when you consider the excess of all that you have, when you, when you actually sit and think for a moment or you get something new, young people listen to me, maybe you get this new toy or this new thing that you've always wanted and you finally get it. Are you led to praise God? Maybe even led to, and by the way, this counts for boats and trucks and anything else you can think of, okay? It's for all of us. I have so much I want to share. I want to give thanks to God and I want to share. Or is it just like, well, that's neat. Now I want more. I need more. Another question. This might be more suited for the adults. When you receive anything above and beyond what you expect or what you're used to, perhaps a bonus, some magical check that arrives in the mail, some other gift of money, is your first thought to share some of it or all of it? Or is it immediately, whoa, what can I get with this? Well, maybe we need it. Maybe that's God's provision for some need that we weren't sure we were going to meet. But I'm talking about something unexpected. Where does your heart go first? Third question. Do you see your hard work and stewardship as tools to expand your kingdom or to expand Christ's kingdom? Your hard work, your stewardship, is it to expand your kingdom or Christ's kingdom? And last question, which I know you all expect this question, and I'd be a negligent pastor if I didn't ask this question. Do you tithe? Do you tithe? One of the primary ways that God has called his people to demonstrate their dependence on him, their trust in his faithfulness, and their generosity as a response is to give the first fruits of their labor back to him. God, God doesn't need that. But God calls us to give the first fruits of what we have back to him. Whether if, if you go back in time, if you were a, a farmer and all you had was your produce of the land, you gave a tenth of that. You gave that back to the Lord, the first fruits. You gave it back to him before you did anything else. And that principle of the giving of first fruits is true throughout the whole Bible. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, this idea that I'm stewarding what God has given me and a portion of it belongs back to him. Tithing is not some soul-restricting, joy-sapping, legalistic thing that's reserved for the spiritual and financial elites. It's a call upon every follower of Jesus, no matter how much or how little they have. Listen, I say this to you as a pastor who does not look at individual giving records, okay? I don't. And I say this to you as a pastor that genuinely cares about you. I care about you and your life, the life that you're living for God. And I want to say this to you, if you want to be content, you must be generous. You need to freely give 
a portion of what already belongs to God back to him. You need to pray. And ask God, God, what is that that you want me to give back to you? Where can you start? I remember I didn't get tithing when I became a Christian. I didn't get it. As a teenager, I wasn't making any money either. And then no one taught me. And I started working and I started making yeah, some of an income. I didn't know what to do. Like, I heard them talking about it, but no one ever told me. And they said, here, start here. Okay. Start with 1%. Every check you get, give that to God. And then build up from there. Be generous. Give to the Lord. Perhaps you find yourself there too. You say, I don't know how I can do that. I say, I don't know how you can't. Generosity and contentment are friends, not enemies. It all belongs to God. It's a joy to give back to God what already belongs to him. There, I said it, just about to hit my three-year anniversary, and it's the first time I've preached on tithing. Because our text brought us there. We're faithful to the text. So I pray that you would hear God's word. They would respond to God's work in your heart. And beyond just that last point, you would take all of these things in mind and that God would lead you to be generous for his glory and for your good. Amen and amen.